Well, good morning, Calvary. Uh, my name is Jason. I get to serve here as one of our student pastors. And so with my teammate, Jess Greaser, we get to oversee 6th through 12th grade students here at Calvary. And then uh, more day-to-day, I get to be with our high school students. And it is just a ton of fun. Just got back from Houston with some of them. So that's what I get to do here at Calvary. And it's a ton of fun to get to be with you this morning. If you've been with us all summer or if you're new to us this morning, we've been in a series this summer that we're calling Billboard Top 10, where we've been talking about some famous verses in the Bible. Uh, If you've grown up in church, they're definitely verses you've heard of. Even if you haven't grown up in church, uh, they may have been verses that you've heard of as well. And so for some of these verses, They're providing kind of new meaning, like, wow, sometimes we get some of the interpretation of these verses wrong. And for some of these uh, verses, it's an opportunity to kind of have a refresher, to uh, understand the Bible maybe a new way and understand Jesus in a new way. And so we're continuing that series this morning, talking about yet another passage of Scripture that uh, you've probably heard of. But before we get into it, I do have a question. How many of you guys would consider yourselves plan makers. You love making plans, like six of you. How many of you, you hate making plans? You hate make. I'm in the hate making plans category. All it takes is one great plan to fall through and you're just like, forget it. I'm just never doing that ever again. But I have a younger sister. Her name's Kayla. I grew up in Chicago. Kayla still lives in Chicago. And she has a hilarious, a hilarious thing that happened to her a couple years ago. Um, her and her friends had an amazing plan to go out for New Year's Eve, which all terrible plans start on New Year's Eve. I feel like everybody hates New Year's Eve. But they were going to go to Toronto. Very random city choice. They're going to drive from Chicago to Toronto. They're going to hit the town. They're going to go out for New Year's Eve. So they get an Airbnb. They drive from Chicago to Toronto. They're going to go out for New Year's Eve. So they get there, get to the Airbnb. They're checked in. Everything's good. They're getting ready, dolled up, or whatever they're doing to go out for the night and they go to walk outside the Airbnb and it's, it's locked and they're on the inside and they couldn't get out and they couldn't figure out how to get out. And so they called the, the apartment owner and said, hey, we're locked in. And he's like, hey, it's New Year's Eve. Like, I cannot help you. I'm out for New Year's Eve. So they're stuck there. And the landlord calls a locksmith and the locksmith's like, yo, it's New Year's Eve. I cannot come get you. So they are panicking, right? It's not like a small apartment, but you know, when you're stuck somewhere, even if it's not small, you start to get a little claustrophobic, right? And a little like breathing into a paper bag type situation. And so they start panicking. They don't know what to do. They can't get out. We're in Toronto. I can't get out of this apartment. I don't know why one of the friends starts putting butter on the lock. Like that's gonna, like that's gonna, that's just gonna help somehow. Not shockingly, didn't help. Locksmith celebrates his New Year's Eve, he comes at about two in the morning, ends up just having to cut the lock and get them out, and they celebrated midnight in an apartment in Toronto. Awesome experience, right? And some of you are like, that is the exact reason why I hate making plans, because of that very reason. I've spent so much time and money, and it was just not worth it. And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the idea of plans. More specifically, we're talking about the idea of God's plans. And so the the moment I say that, I'm guessing you have an idea, if you grew up in church, of what passage of scripture we're talking about. We're going to be talking about this morning the verse Jeremiah 29, 11. And we're going to follow the same kind of gist of how we followed the rest of the weeks. We're going to talk about what's going on in this passage. What does it say? What does it mean? And then at the end, we'll talk a little bit about what we do in light 
of this verse. So let me read it for us, and it should be on the screens here. Jeremiah 29, 11. For some of you, a very familiar verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. So what is going on? To help us better better understand butter. Man, I got that story stuck in my head. (laughs) To help us better understand what's going on, I think it's it's important to understand the background of what's happening here, because I think the background provides clarity. Let me give you an example. I'm from Chicago. I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. We finally won our World Series. I can die in peace. But for 108 years, there was not a World Series victory in Chicago. And when I was younger, the Cubs had a very good team. They were in the National League Championship Series. They were one win away from going to the World Series. They're playing the Florida Marlins, game six at Wrigley Field, and a player on the Marlins hits a fly ball into left field. It starts veering, 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 and it lands right in the awkward space where the field meets the grandstands. And if you know anything about baseball, you might be familiar with what happened. A fan reached over the ledge and interfered with the Cubs left fielder catching the ball. The player got another chance to bat. He got on base. The Cubs ended up blowing a lead late in the game, and they ended up losing game seven, and they didn't go to the World Series. And if you're a Cubs fan, you're like, you're not even mad. You're just like, of course that happened. Like, of course that happened. We're the Chicago Cubs. If you don't know anything about the history of the Cubs, you're like, what's the big deal? You lost a game, big deal. But if you've had 108 years of torture, you feel like that is what happens to the Chicago Cubs. So the background kind of provides clarity to what's going on. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. We're going to talk about how we got to where we are in the book of Jeremiah. And so to do that, we have to start in the beginning. The first book of the Bible is called the book of Genesis. And in the beginning, God created. He created everything in the universe, the heavens and the earth. He created mankind. Everything was good. He created two people, Adam and Eve. They lived in perfect relationship with Jesus or with God. There was, there was nothing wrong in the world, but they sinned. They rejected God. We use this language here at Calvary. God created, but, but Adam and Eve, they rejected God. There was, there was a, a brokenness in their relationship with God, but God had a plan from the beginning to restore that brokenness in relationship. And so the first phase of that plan was to make a promise. And God makes a promise to this guy, Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm gonna lead you to a brand new land. I'm gonna make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm gonna bless you. You will be a blessed people. You will be my chosen people. And Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob. And there's a story in the book of Genesis where Jacob wrestles with God. And God says, you will no longer be called Jacob, you will be called Israel. And and that refers to the people of God. If you've you've heard that word at church and you're like, Israel, like I don't understand, we say the people of Israel or the Israelites, if you've ever heard that in church, we're not referring to people that live in modern day Israel, we're referring to the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, the descendants of Abraham. And the word Israel can be translated as struggles with God, struggles with God. And that is the rest of the Old Testament. The people of Israel lived up to the name. Throughout the Old Testament, you see time and time again stories of a group of people who are struggling with God. 
And so not long after that promise, the people of Israel, this people that are already struggling with God, find themselves in slavery in Egypt. But God sends this guy Moses to rescue them. And so Moses goes into Egypt to these people of Israel. He rescues them. He brings them out of slavery to this place called the promised land, this place that the Bible describes as flowing with milk and honey. But Moses leads them all the way up to the promised land. He disobeys God, and he doesn't actually get to lead them into the promised land, this guy Joshua gets to lead them into the promised land. And that's where we find ourselves for a while. We find this, this, this cycle, this circle of the people of God uh, serving the Lord, obeying God, finding themselves caught in, in patterns of sin, patterns of rejection, patterns of disobedience. They being t- people of Israel get taken over by a foreign land. They cry out to the God, God, we forgive us, we made a mistake. God sends someone to, forg- to rescue them and it's this cycle over and over, and that's this, this book of, of this story of these people struggling with God. And eventually, God sends these prophets to the people. He sends these prophets, these spokesmen, that he sends to the people of Israel to communicate, to reveal his word to them, to call them to repentance, to say, hey, you better turn, you better stop screwing up, you better stop your ways of sin and turn back to me, you better stop worshiping other lesser gods and start worshiping me again, and if you don't, there will be consequences. And so that's where we find ourselves when we get to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of those prophets that God sent to this group of people who are constantly struggling with him to communicate, to reveal his will to them and to say, hey, if you don't turn from your sin, there's going to be some problems here. And so that's who Jeremiah is. He has this, he has this nickname, the weeping prophet. I kind of like to, ref- I refer to him in my mind as the Eeyore of the prophets. I don't know if you've seen that new Winnie the Pooh, but he's kind of this oh bother, judgment type guy, not super popular. But he's sent by God to these people to, to, to implore them, to encourage them to turn from worshiping idols to worshiping other gods and begin to worship the one true God. And it comes with a warning. Jeremiah's words come with a warning. If you don't turn from your ways, there's going to be judgment, and that judgment is in the form of the nation of Babylon. Because that's the thing with rejection. We talked about how they re- the Adam and Eve rejected God. Rejection, sin, disobedience, it has to be punished. Because God is a holy God, he's a righteous God, he's a just God, he cannot live in the presence of sin. And so sin comes with consequence, sin comes with punishment. And so Jeremiah says, you're going to be punished in the form of Babylon. Babylon is this world superpower of the day. They're going to come into your home of Jerusalem and they're going to destroy your hometown. And that's exactly what happens. They don't listen, they don't turn from their ways, and and Babylon comes into Jerusalem, they destroy the city, they destroy the temple where the people worship God, and they took some of the people with them into Babylon. Not all of the people, but some of the people. And so some of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, were taken from their home of Jerusalem, and they're brought by the world superpower of the day, Babylon, into Babylon to live in exile. However, some of the people got to remain in Jerusalem. And so just imagine with me for a second what that must have been like. We don't get, the Bible doesn't give us insight necessarily into the thought process of these people, but just if we could imagine for a second what they were thinking as they're making the trek from Jerusalem to Babylon and about to be in exile and captivity. Man, I thought, I thought we were God's chosen people. 
I thought God already saved our forefathers from slavery in Egypt. Why would he save us from slavery just to allow us to go back into another foreign nation? That makes no sense to me. What's going to happen now? We're not in our homeland anymore. Where do we go from here? And that's what brings us to chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah. Like I said, up until this point, the first 28 chapters of the book of Jeremiah, it's about judgment and destruction. It's kind of doom and gloom from Jeremiah to the people. You can imagine that he wasn't very well liked amongst the people. I don't know why I equate this with Jeremiah. It's a very imperfect analogy, but if you just want some insight into my brain, I kind of equate him to the friend that you're with at dinner who's continually reminding you you're on a diet. You know, like... I'll take the burger and fries. Really? Oh, thought you were on a diet. It's like, I, let me live my life. Like, get out of my face. I'm having a burger and fries. Like, continually, Jeremiah reminding the people, and this is where we are in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. He doesn't get taken into Babylon. And so the people in Babylon, Jeremiah is now writing letters to them. He doesn't get to speak to them in person. They're in two different places. He's writing letters to the people in Babylon, and that's where we are in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. So let's read this verse again with that in mind, with the mindset of this group of people who were chosen by God, yet have been in in a cycle of struggling with God, who have just been ripped from their homeland. Their homeland was destroyed, and now they're in a foreign land, unsure of what is to come. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. So what is being said here? And why is it relevant to what is going on? I mean, the words seem somewhat self-explanatory, right? God is saying he has a plan. He has a plan for his people, there's a, there's, a, there's a famous song out right now by the artist Drake called God's Plan. This was his inspiration for the song. No, that's not true at all. <laughs> that's not true at all. But let me just tell you that that example is the difference between, te- this is a total side note, the difference between teaching adults and students. I get to teach our students. When I teach our students something, they'll go home and you as their parent will be like, what did you talk about? And they'll be like, I, or what did you learn tonight? I don't know. What did you talk about? Pfft, out of Drake? And you're like, whoa, we talked about Drake. You probably will call me or email me, question why we're teaching on Drake. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so that is the difference. And let me just, there's a little personal plug. If your student goes home and says something like that, and you're like, that's probably weird. We probably didn't teach on that. So maybe let's just, uh, with a grain of salt, what our students are saying. We have our middle scores in the house over here. So, hey guys, thanks for all of the wrong things you accuse me of. Um, if... Unless it's positive, they're like, oh, Jason was awesome, then you could just, you could, you could believe that probably. But So, so he, here's what it's saying. God has a plan for the people. I have a plan for you. The word you is plural. It's kind of like saying, I have a plan for y'all. I have a plan for you, group of people, not an individual thing, but for you as a group of people. My plans include prosperity. Another translation of the word prosperity could be welfare. I have plans for your welfare, for your prosperity. My plans do not include harm. My plans include hope. My plans include a future. That's what it looks like it's saying, right? The Hebrew word here for prosper is the word shalom, 
which could mean peace. It could mean completeness, wholeness. I have plans for wholeness for you once again. I have plans to restore you once again. That's what it looks like it's saying. And on taking that face value seems like a pretty great verse. God has plans, plans of welfare and prosperity, plans not to harm, plans to give hope in a future. Sounds pretty great. So what does it mean? What does it mean? And here God is making a promise. This is a promise from God. And there's two layers to this promise. The first promise is this. There's a promise of earthly material kind of prosperity for the people of Israel. And the verse before, in verse 10, God says that you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. He says, in 70 years, I will restore you. That's pretty great news, but it's not that great news, right? Because it's not a promise for them to get out of captivity. They will probably be dead in 70 years. It's a, a really a promise for their kids and grandkids, right? Like this analogy is kind of broken again because the Eagles won the Super Bowl, which is awesome. Last time I preached, everyone booed me because I thought I wasn't an Eagles fan. Uh, but like the Eagles, but let's just assume for a second the Eagles didn't win the Super Bowl. And I said, hey, I promise you the Eagles will win the Super Bowl in the year 2088, in, in 70 years. You'd be like, well, that's kind of cool for my kids and grandkids, but really not that cool for me because I probably won't get to see it, right? That's kind of what he's saying. In 70 years, I will restore you. In 70 years, I will bring you back to your homeland. I'll bring you back to Jerusalem. You'll have your, your families together again, your relationships, your houses, your livestock. All of your life will be brought, restored to you once again. And, and honestly, that's how many of us seem to interpret and apply this verse, right? We think God has a plan for my finances, God has a plan for my family. God has a plan for my marriage. God has a plan for my relationships. God has a plan for my school. God has a plan for my job. God has a plan for my health and well-being. And all of those plans include welfare. They include prosperity. God's plan for all of those aspects of my life don't include harm. They include hope and future. And that makes sense, right? All of us want a great life. I want a great life. Nobody gets married and goes on a honeymoon and says, I can't wait to get divorced. Yes. <laughs> Nobody gets a paycheck from their job and says, I can't wait to spend more money than this. All right? Nobody starts a new job and on their first day in the office says, I can't wait to get fired. Hopefully none of you said that about your job. We want a, a good life. We want prosperity. We want welfare. And so that's why many of us, we cling to this verse Right? We tattoo it on our bodies, we put it on bumper stickers, we put it on plaques in our house, we put it on our Instagram profiles, we text it to our friends in their times of need. And so for many of us, it's a source of hope. You know, we struggle financially, but we know that God has a plan for prosperity. We lost our job, we failed a test, we got a bad medical diagnosis, but we know that ultimately God has a plan for us to prosper. And for some of us, for those same reasons, this verse has been more of a source of confusion than hope. Because none of our lives are completely put together. And so we do struggle financially. We do struggle relationally. We do struggle in school. We do struggle in our job. And we ask ourselves, how could this be? This wasn't the plan that God had for me. I thought that God said in the book of Jeremiah 29 verse 11 that his plans for me were plans of prosperity. I thought he said that his plans for me were plans of welfare. And here's what's important 
for us to understand, and it may come across as bad news, and I promise it'll ultimately be great news. But this promise, the first layer of this promise that is for earthly material welfare is for the people of Israel and for the people of Israel only. That's who God is talking to through the prophet Jeremiah. This may sound weird, but the Bible was written by real people and it was written to real people. So the book of Jeremiah actually wasn't written to us. In the book of Jeremiah 29, he's writing to the people of Israel. He's not writing to the people in Satterton in the year 2018. He's not. The Bible is still for us. And the Bible is as applicable now as it has been forever, but it wasn't written for us. And so for us to best understand the Bible, we have to see what it meant to the people it was actually written to. And so that first layer of the promise was for the people of Israel, but there's a second layer to the promise. There's a second layer to the promise in this verse. Remember in the book of Genesis, we sinned, we rejected God, but God had a plan to restore the brokenness in the relationship. And we read throughout the rest of the Old Testament this, the stories of this group of people who are struggling with God and who God gives temporary fixes to them for their sin and temporary fixes to them for their problems, but there's still something wrong. And so the Old Testament is building and then there's stories of slavery and there's stories of rescue. There's stories of a promised land, but the people continue to disobey. So God sends messengers and prophets to warn them to turn from their ways and they don't listen. So they get sent into captivity and they get rescued from captivity. And after Jeremiah, God sends a few more prophets to warn the people and nothing. 400 years of silence. 400 years of confusion of the people back in Jerusalem not understanding what's happening. Why has God stopped sending prophets? Why has God stopped sending people to us? Until one night in Bethlehem, a baby was born. And his name was is Jesus. And that baby grows up and he does what nobody else in the history of mankind has done. He lived a life of perfection. His relationship with God was unlike his chosen people. Jesus was a part of the people of Israel, yet he wasn't struggling with God in the same way. He wasn't rejecting God or disobeying God. And earlier we said that sin needs to be punished because of the holiness and righteousness and justness of God. And Jesus didn't sin, so he didn't deserve punishment, but he willingly died on a cross for our punishment. The punishment that you deserve for your sin and the punishment that I deserve for my sin was paid for by Jesus on the cross. And with his last breath, he cries out, it is finished. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God's plan from the beginning of history was completed. Plans of a hope, plans of a future, Plans of, of shalom, plans of restoration, plans of wholeness, plans of completeness, plans of restoring relationship was complete. God knew what he was doing all along. God's plan from the beginning of eternity was to restore the brokenness in his relationship with humanity through his son. 
See, the second layer of this promise, this spiritual promise of restored relationship through Jesus, that is absolutely for us. And that promise is so much better than the first promise. Here's what I know, and here's what I love about this verse. Carlos talked about this a few weeks ago when he talked about John 3.16. So many times when we read the same thing over and over and over, it has the opportunity to lose its power or meaning in our life. And I grew up in the church, I've heard this verse a trillion times, and when someone quotes it, I'm like, yes, I get it, Jeremiah 29, 11, I understand. But when I was studying for this message, the, the verse came alive again. And I think we all sell this verse short. When we quote it, and when we text it to our friends, when we get it tattooed, and when we put it up on a plaque in our house, we sell it Short, and here's what I know, Calvary. Our desires for earthly welfare are extraordinarily weak. Our desires for earthly welfare are extraordinarily weak. We think about this verse and we want material prosperity. We want good finances and good marriages. We want good grades. We want our sports teams to do good. We want to do well in our jobs and we want good health. And God is saying here that he is offering us something far, far better than those things. There's a quote I really like from an author, his name C.S. Lewis. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. The truth is, we could have a huge checking account in an amazing house, in an awesome family, great health, awesome relationships, awesome jobs, great opportunities, amazing grades, successful sports teams, and not have Jesus and have nothing. And we could be naked and homeless and hungry and poor and have Jesus and have everything. And Jesus is far better than any earthly prosperity. So what do we do with this verse? How do we live in light of this truth? We're gonna read a little bit earlier from the the chapter 29, verses four. I'm gonna skip to verse seven. It says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See, we, we've learned that God is promising us something amazing. The creator of the universe had a plan before he created anything to restore the broken relationship. God knew that Adam and Eve were going to reject him, yet he chose to create them anyway. He had the plan before they even existed to restore the brokenness that didn't even exist yet. And so he chose this people that he knew he was going to struggle with, but he chose them anyway. And he knew it was going to take a long, long time for his plan to come to fruition. And his plan was going to involve slavery and rescue. His plan was going to involve captivity and rescue. His plan was going to involve sending prophets and ultimately his plan was going to send his own son to take the punishment for our sin. That's how much you mean to God. But that's how much your coworkers mean to God. That's how much your neighbors mean to God. That's how much your classmates and your teammates mean to God. So we need to live our lives in light of their spiritual prosperity. 
live our lives knowing that the people in our lives that don't know Jesus can also have a hope and also have a future in who Jesus is. The second thing we can have in light of this verse is hope. I've mentioned it a couple times, but if your plans for your life haven't quite measured up to what you had hoped for, if you made some epic New Year's Eve plans in Toronto and got locked in the Airbnb, the truth of the matter is your life may never be what you hoped or expected it to be. But if you have Jesus, you have hope. You have a future in heaven where everything will be as God intended it. There will be no more brokenness. There will be no more crying. There will be no more death. There will be no more sickness. And you will be free of pain and suffering and brokenness. The God of the universe had a plan that involved sacrificing his son because he wanted so badly to have a relationship with you. And in that truth, there is comfort and there is hope and there is peace. And the third thing is if you're sitting here and you're new to church and you've never heard this before, or you're just visiting and and Jesus hasn't quite been for you up until this point, man, maybe it's time. Is this the God that you've been familiar with your whole life? The God who's had a plan. The God whose plan involves sacrificing his own son for the punishment that you and I deserve. The God who has always been in control. Maybe today it's time to receive what, what God is offering you. Maybe it's time to see this prop, promise of God through his prophet Jeremiah that God is offering something amazing in the form of his son, Jesus. Our desires, Calvary, our desires for earthly welfare, they're extraordinarily weak. And God is offering something far better than anything we could imagine. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to send my son to die for you. Plans to send my son to take the punishment that you deserve. Plans to love you, pursue you, and be in relationship with you once more. Plans to give you something you don't deserve, but something far better than anything you could ever imagine. Let me pray for us. God, we're grateful for these words of Jeremiah. We're grateful that you, God, are a God who has had a plan. That your plan involved us, that your plan involved sacrifice. God, we don't deserve any of it. And words can't express how grateful we are for the life that we can now have through Jesus. And it's your name we pray. Amen.